if you've got your Bibles, we're in Acts, and we're resuming our series. We're, we're picking up in Acts chapter 5. And it's always uh, an interesting experience. We've talked a fair bit into what it's like to go through the Bible verse by verse, to unpack a book. Uh, we, we come basically surrendering our agenda to the Bible, to the Scriptures, and, and asking God to speak for each occasion. And, and it's always very interesting to see how he meets us in that place. That we can sort of look at the book of Acts and go, okay, well, this is the storyline, this is the, the trajectory. But at the same time, you know, we as a church, we as individuals have our own needs, have our own seasons of life that we're in. And God tends to meet in the middle using uh, these scriptures that we're going through and applying them to our immediate circumstance. And that's why we call it uh, the living word of God. The Bible itself says that God's word is living and active, uh, that it is alive. Uh, in a number of places, it, it mentions that. And so as we go through a book, we find that actually it, it lives. It speaks to us like that. And uh, it's an incredible privilege to prepare throughout the week through these scriptures and to take a look at and really experience the, the transforming power of these scriptures prior to actually uh, giving them. Uh, what am I saying? Look, basically, I've been challenged by this passage this week. And what that means is that you're going to get challenged, uh, hopefully. And that's not actually me. That's, that's the, the Scriptures. That's the Holy Spirit saying, look, this is what's going on at the moment. And this is what God wants to say to us. So if, you're in, if you've got your book of uh, Acts open there, we're in Acts chapter 5. And we're going to start from verse 12. And before we do that, we might just uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just want to honour you and we just want to proclaim that you are Lord of this place, that you are present here with us, that this moment is sanctified and holy because you are here and because you live in the hearts of each one of us who confesses Jesus as our Lord. And we thank you that you have words to say to us, that you have work to do in our lives and that you have a path for us to walk. We pray that you would reveal it in your holy and precious name. Amen. Acts 5 verse 12. Now, we're going to look back for a moment and then we're going to look forward and then we're going to look within what's going on here. So if we're looking back, we've seen that the story of Acts has been of the beginning of the church and that the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and then uh, they go out and preach the gospel. They proclaim the gospel. Initially, it's in multiple languages and the people are uh, understood by you know everyone that's around. Masses of people are coming to the faith through hearing the gospel for the first time. And so as the gospel kind of ramps up in its influence, so does the opposition of the world and the environment around it. And in each kind of stage of the narrative, we get this snapshot of how much the opposition is escalating, how much the progress of the gospel is escalating, and how much the formation of this early church and this group of people is escalating. So we've just come from the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And if you were here for that message, that was a series on its own, and uh, Liam gave a message on being generous. If you haven't seen that, please, 
please go and look at that uh, online because I, I say with no exaggeration, it's probably the best sermon on giving that I've heard. It was, it was really quite, quite uh, fruitful in, in my soul. So go and have a look at that. But the story of Ananias and Sapphira is that Ananias sees Barnabas doing this incredibly generous thing. He sells his property and he lays the money at the apostles' feet and he says, this is for the church. This is for the people of God, for the message that's going out, for the work of God, for the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, then Ananias sees that and goes, oh, well, Barnabas seems to be pretty popular with everyone and I'd, I'd like to do that as well. So he sells his property. Uh, we, he and his, his wife are in cahoots, Sapphira. They sell their property and they lay only part of the money at the apostles' feet. And they say, look, we've been just as generous. And then uh, Paul, sorry, Peter gets a, a word of knowledge from God at that moment to know that that's not how much it was sold for. And he challenges him on it. And he says, look, is this actually what you sold it for? And Ananias is thinking, well, yeah, I guess. Uh, and then at that moment, Peter essentially pronounces the judgment of God and says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've thought that you're lying to men, but if you sincerely tried to do this out of the generosity of your heart, God knows that you're trying to deceive. And so judgment fell very heavily on him and he died. Three hours later, same thing happened to his wife. Incredibly challenging portion of scripture. Uh, and Liam dealt with it very, uh, very well and tactfully and, and insightfully. But you get this result that everyone is just sort of in awe and, and f- in fear of the apostles. They seem to be in this you know, category of spiritual operation that nobody has seen before, or perhaps that nobody has seen since the Old Testament prophets. Uh, there are some hairy stories if you want to go back and, and go through those. So there's this sense that the apostles are somehow this, you know, incredible, you know, close to God, you know, they can heal people, they can do amazing things, and they can also do some kind of scary things. So we see that the temperature is is rising dramatically in the church. I mean, in the early days, it's like, whoa, these guys are a bit crazy. They're speaking in different tongues, but, you know, it looks like people are understanding. You know, the worst criticism that they got was it looks like you guys are drunk and it's only nine in the morning. Now people are dying because the judgment of God is coming for their false generosity. I mean, that seems to be getting out of hand. The persecution has also been escalating over that time as well. So that's where we're coming from. That's our look backward, and that's the point that we're at at the moment. Our look forward on this series, Unstoppable, is that the next couple of chapters are essentially the story of how the gospel, just nothing can stop the gospel. The opposition has been increasing over that period of time. And we get to the point where, you know, initially the disciples are, you know, opposed. They're taken in for questioning and then they sort of get released. And then they get arrested and they get held and they get incarcerated. And then they get told, don't do this anymore. Don't preach in the same name anymore. And then we're going to see that they're going to get arrested again. They're actually going to get physically beaten and mistreated uh, and threatened death. And then they're going to leave. And at all this time, the gospel message is still growing and is still going forward. Eventually, we're going to get to the story of Stephen, uh, the first Christian martyr who uh, dies for the message of the gospel at the hands of the same people who crucified or who the Jewish leaders who led to Jesus' crucifixion. And then that's when the gospel really explodes out of Jerusalem. So we're looking forward to this unstoppable, unstoppable message. Now, let's look within. Verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. 
None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is one of those summary passages that we've talked about. We get to a spot in the narrative where they sort of pause and then they say, all right, well, let's just take stock of what's going on here. We're not in, a, in a, any particular story. We're just going to pause and talk about what's going on here. And what you might have noticed is that these summary passages follow a bit of a formula. The first one that we had was in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, which explains that the disciples were all together uh, and that they were uh, of one accord and that uh, they, I believe that's the one where it says they were sharing and and having all uh, possessions uh, in common. So they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It also says that wonders and signs were being done, done through the apostles. And it says that the people had favor, sorry, that the Christians had favor with the people. And it said the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that's quite comparable to the passage that we've just seen. There's another summary passage in chapter 4 which says similar things, verse 32 and 33. And what we see is that each of them hits on these four points. Right? As the narrative is escalating, they each hit on these four points. The first one is that there are many signs and wonders being done, that there is power accompanying the gospel message. The first summary passage says that signs and wonders were being performed. The second one says that the apostles were testifying with power to the message of Jesus. And so this one we get in the uh, verse, where are we? Verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So each one of these is kind of a, an escalation from the previous. So many signs and wonders being done. Now, let me just say that the gospel message, God chooses to uh, support or to, or to ratify or to confirm the truth of his gospel message by accompanying it with things that only God can do. And that makes sense. Now, you get some people who will say that well, the gospel preaching has to have miracles and things happening alongside of it. Well, we see that that's probably not always the case. But we are doing a disservice to ourselves, to our church, and to the people around us if we assume that God is not going to do those things. All right? So we should assume that if the gospel message is being proclaimed, that God can come and do incredibly powerful and wonderful things to confirm his message. And we've seen that here among our people, even in messages such as this. So let me just say that 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 first thing is that you should not leave with any excuses for God not to be showing up powerfully and supernaturally in your life. Because when the gospel message goes out, it is accompanied by these things. Obviously, you can take that and make it something that it's not, uh, and we're not aiming at doing that, but we we need to sit in that, that point of tension in the middle there. So that's the first thing. The second thing that they proclaim is that there is some some degree of unity among these people, among the Christians. So the first one, uh, we saw that the the Christians had this fellowship, this koinonia, and we we had a a lengthy talk on what this fellowship actually meant, that all of the barriers that had previously separated them 
uh, had now brought them together. And then in the second summary passages, it says that they were all of one heart and mind. So they're not just together, but they're, they're unified, they're stitched together. And this, I'm, I'm interested to this translation here because it's actually not a very good translation of, of what's going on in verse 12. It says that they were uh, all together. So all of them were in the same place, but then there's this word called, uh, this word homothumadon, uh, which is two Greek words, homo meaning the same, and then thumos, which is one of these words for like your heart. Right, they were of the same heart, and some of the other translations might bring that across uh, a bit better. But the thumos uh, is, if you were to look it up in the lexicon, it, it's talking about the, the deepest, the most passionate, the the sort of the inner part of your soul and all of your desires and passions and wants. And so it's it's not just that they were together in the same place, but they were unified, and there was in the most intense and primary part of who they were, they were together. And maybe that's a, a talk for another day, but you can see how, once again, there's this escalation. Initially, they were all together. They had things in common. And then they were of the same uh, heart and mind. And then here, they're of the same thumos. All, everything about them, their most inward desires and passions is all unified in this place. So, signs and wonders, unity. The third one is the opinion of the outside people. And there's a particular word which is translated by the ESV as the people. We see it twice in this passage. Uh, we see in verse 12, it says that wonders were regularly done among the people. And then we see in verse 13, the people held them in high esteem. And the people translates this word uh, laos, from which we get the word laity. And the book of Acts uses this word to refer specifically to the non-Christians, okay, the people who were not believing. And so it's, it gives us usually a, a, an opinion of these people and how the Christians were viewed by them. So in the, in the first summary passage, it tells us that they had favor among the people. But in the second, uh, and that's the word uh, charis, right, which we get grace. Um, so that can often mean just favor, which is how they translate it in chapter 2. And then in chapter 4, it says that great grace was upon them, which is megale kari. And that, uh, you could translate that as, you know, great grace, or you might say that there was great favor upon them. So everyone sort of looked at them in this, you know, kind of grand reputation. And then in this passage, we get uh, the people, that is the, the laos, the, the people who are outside the believing people, held them in high esteem. And can I tell you that that is a bad translation of a word that makes, un makes Christians uncomfortable, right? Because the word behind that idea of high esteem is megaluno, right? Which you've got the word mega in there. But if you were to look it up in a, in a lexicon, it would tell you that it means to exalt, to magnify, to, uh, to, to give glory, to extol which is an uncomfortable thing. And you can see how the translators sort of go, ah, well, that's not really appropriate for us to translate it as they were praising and magnifying the, the people. You know, what, one other uh, instance of this word in another text is, is translated as they gained glory from. 
right? And that's not theologically correct for us to say that. And yet, it's the word that's happening here. And so once again, we have this escalation. There's favor, then there's great favor, and then suddenly they're almost being praised. They're almost put on a level. And I mean, it just makes sense. Think about it. They've just seen that people have tried to deceive them through the selling and the the offering of this, and then they've died, right? So it it suddenly placed them on on a plane that's that's different uh, to everything else. And the fourth thing that each of these summary passages give us is the progression of the gospel message, including a statement about people coming to faith. And here we have very clearly that more than ever, people who believed were being added to the Lord. And so previously we had you know, thousands of people coming and then we had the Lord added to their number day by day. And now we've got more than ever, people are coming to faith in Jesus. So what we're seeing here in the church is a moment where things are getting so hot that the very words we're starting to use are uncomfortable. That the temperature of the gospel message, that what the church is trying to do, that what the gospel is doing is just causing so much strain on the people and on the structures that are sort of there for the church that it's getting ready to burst. I mean, initially you've got this amazing gospel message but people forget that they're dealing with God. And sooner or later, God's going to show up. And sometimes that's not going to be good for people. If God is, if you are exposed to God in his holiness, then sometimes that's going to be too much, as we saw with, with Ananias and Sapphira. And so the temperature of the gospel message is being turned up so hot that things are about to change. And I know that uh, Pat talks about this idea of a, of a wineskin, that when you put new wine into an old wineskin, the wineskin bursts. That's a, a biblical uh, analogy. And we see it happen a lot in church, uh, which we see happening here, is that the old structures, the things that are in place for God to try and accomplish what he wants to accomplish are no longer sufficient. Right? The status quo is not enough. And so things are bursting. And that's why you have you know, people like Ananias and Sapphira uh, receiving judgment in that way. It's why we've got the end of this passage when we see that actually everybody else around Jerusalem is starting to come in because the message wants to go out, right? God told them, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. They're just staying in the Jerusalem, but the message wants to get out. And so people are starting to come to them, right? So literally the the church is unable to contain how far this message wants to go. And Crazy things are starting to happen. And these words like, you know, they're being praised. I feel like I'm not communicating this as clearly as I could, but like the temperature is so hot there that things are about to change. Okay, that's, that's my summary, if, if you can understand that. Anyway. Okay, so that's, that's looking within the narrative. That's what's happening. Now we're going to go a bit verse by verse before we get to kind of our main point where um, we're all going to... Hear the challenge of the the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. We'll start halfway through because why not? And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, did you notice that the message is growing more than ever, despite the fact that the opposition to the message is growing more than ever? That is a very clear point that Luke 
is making is that in every attempt to stop this message from going out, it is in fact increasing more than ever. The efforts to oppose are doing so much less than nothing. If anything, they're actually you know, spurring the gospel on to further uh, dissemination. Do we carry around this message with the sense that it is unstoppable? Do we? I don't think we do. I think we tend to be stopped by many different things, such as embarrassment or perhaps the sense that somebody else is going to look at us differently or that we're going to you know, lose a friendship or, or lose a connection or maybe that we'll say it in the wrong words or we'll say it at the wrong time. There are lots of things that stop us from proclaiming this message, which is so-called unstoppable. Why? Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you see, when we're sharing the, the gospel, when we share the message, it's not actually on us to save that person. You can't convert somebody. You can't save somebody. That is and always has been the job of Jesus. And he continues to do it day by day. Notice also the wording of this. It says that uh, people who believed were added to the Lord. That is an interesting way to word it, is it not? Because it doesn't say they chose to become Christians. It doesn't say they joined uh, the church. It says that they were added to the Lord. And you see, that is language that does not speak of membership, but it speaks of adoption. Because when you become a Christian, you don't sign up to a club. You know, you guys, as, as much as we love this, this place, this fellowship, this building, all of the wonderful things that God has blessed us with, you don't come here because this is your church. You are a part of the body of Christ. And this is where we meet together. And were all of this to burn down tomorrow, you know, God forbid that that would happen, but the church would still be here because we are adopted as children of God we are not members of a religious club. Believers were added to the Lord. That once again speaks of the fact that it's something that only God can do. That Jesus is the one who is building his church. And that in fact, that's why the message is unstoppable. Because Jesus is the one who is doing the work. Can I just invest you with that little bit of confidence in the gospel message? that you can't say the wrong thing because the message of the gospel is what has the power. That if you are sincerely surrendered before God and you believe that he can use you, then you could, uh, we could, we could make a hyperbole out of this and I'm, I'm not gonna do it because you, you, you're sincere in what you wanna say. But if you're, if you're worried that you would mess it up, can I say, please, don't worry. God is bigger than that. God is bigger than that. He's the one who does the saving and the message itself carries the power. Verse 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now that's also a very odd thing to say, isn't it? It's a very odd scenario for people getting healed. And we can infer that obviously people did get healed when the shadow of Peter went across them. And we hear these stories of, you know, later in the book of Acts, Peter's handkerchief is going to be healing people. And there are lots of stories of, you know, crazy things like that. Um, you know, if you look at the people who've been 
what's it called, canonized in um, the sacramental church, that often their garments or whatever it might be have brought you know, healing around to people. And I think part of us is sort of naturally skeptical of those things, but why? Is, that, is God not capable of doing that? Of course he is. I think our natural skepticism comes in when we, when we think that it's associated with that person, right? When we think that uh, Peter is so powerful that his shadow would heal or that saint is so influential that their you know, handkerchief would uh, cause somebody else to get healed. That's probably where the skepticism enters. But the thing is that this, this shadow, this idea of you know, somebody coming, uh, that at least Peter's shadow might cast across, what, what that is is it's a catalyst for faith. It is something that people can hang on to and they say that if only, just like the woman who reached out to touch Jesus' garment, if only I can get a hold of his garment. Was Jesus' garment, was the hem of his garment magical at that moment? No. But it was her faith that was activated by that, you know, practical thing. And so it's absolutely possible for God to do something like this and we just need to avoid attributing all of these miracles to the individual. Because, you know, who believes that Peter actually walked around with the ability to just heal anyone on the spot? Well, no, we know that God is the one who does that. So what was happening was faith. And let me just reiterate the same point here, is that I don't want you to leave with any excuse not to have faith. Okay, just like we saw earlier, God can use anything. Things like this can still happen. And we should be in a position where we're prepared to have faith. At verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And this is, this is big news. Right, because Jesus has gone around in all of his ministry and, and people were following him and then people would listen and then people would, would go and some people would stay. And then here you've got the gospel message arriving in Jerusalem, going out, all of these people are getting healed, all of these people are coming to Jesus. And then it, it's, it's so hot in Jerusalem that the surrounding villages and, and towns and all the people from those are coming into Jerusalem because they are so hungry for the message. The gospel message itself is wanting to go beyond those borders and the messengers are not keeping up. The gospel message, in fact, goes before us. And when we walk with God in being obedient to evangelize or, or to be missional or to be, to be loving, to be caring, to witness to people, we usually find that the, the, the times when that is effective is it's because the gospel message has actually gone before us. You know, when, when you've felt prompted to talk to somebody and, and to say, oh, you know, are you going okay? Or, you know, uh, even, you know, if, if you felt prompted to talk to a non-Christian and say, oh, what do, you, what do you think about God? Often what you find is if you felt that prompting, then that person will come out with something like, oh, you know, it's really been troubling me lately. It's been keeping me up at night. I've been thinking about where I'm going when I die. And that's because the gospel message is actually going before you. And the times where, where God is actually prompting us to act are usually when he's already been sowing the seeds into someone's life. So the gospel message is wanting to get out. It is outrunning the messengers. And so we might feel a, a sense of challenge 
tonight as, as a church whose job it is to witness to Christ. That is what we're here to do. We're here to, to glorify his name and witness to him, are we not? Or are we here to get cheap dinner? That's the only thing that gets an amen. We're, we're doing well. If we are here to witness to the message of Jesus, is it not challenging to think where has that message been outrunning us? I can tell you where, actually. Mainly music on a Thursday morning. The other day I came in here and I, it was like the Jindalee Jungle, for, for those of you who know that kind of thing. It's, it's a play gym that you go to where parents pay a small fee to release their children into a playground and lock them away and enjoy a coffee while there's just mayhem breaking loose in uh, bubble-wrapped uh, things everywhere. It's chaos, it's loud, it's messy, uh, and it's just kids everywhere. And I came into mainly music on thir- one Thursday morning and it's just absolute bedlam. There's just kids everywhere. We had something like 60 people uh, with a volunteer team of about six. And it is insane. Uh, and there's no particular, you know, wonderful strategy for outreach or marketing that is going on there, but people are coming. And you know what? The very fact that they're willing to step into a church shows that there is some, something going on in their hearts with the gospel message, that the gospel message is outrunning us there How can we go to it and and meet that need where it is? Absolutely worth us thinking about and contemplating because at the end of the day, what are you alive for? (laughs) Can I say something so uh, unhelpfully vague? (laughs) What are you alive for other than to glorify the name of Jesus and to go where he sends you to go and to say what he tells you to say? and to show his love to other people. We need to be looking for the opportunities where the gospel message is outrunning us and we want to keep up. Eventually, the people needed a push to leave Jerusalem. And those of you who know the story arc of the book of Acts, uh, the one moment where suddenly they all scatter from Jerusalem, like Jesus told them to, is when Stephen dies for the faith. And we'll certainly get to that moment, but there's a lot to be said about the fact that, uh, you know, his, his witness was, was so powerful, but, you know, it's the opposition and, and the, the dramatic and the, and the, you know, extreme extent of that opposition that actually catalyzes people to go, oh, let's get out. And God's using that situation to say, you know, I told you to go to Jerusalem and to Judea and to the ends of the earth. Uh, One more thing to say about verse 16. They brought the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. Now, the wording of they were all healed, and Greek can can say things in this way. It says, uh, however many they were, all of them were healed. Of whatever sort, whichever sort they were, they were healed. All of them is a literal translation. So it's, it's saying that literally every person of every variety of background, of cultural context, of language, of age, of every sickness, of every type of demon oppression was healed. And we know that there are moments in Scripture where we see that there is a full and comprehensive healing of 
everybody. We also know by a sense of wisdom that that's not in every moment, that God doesn't heal everybody all the time. That's a recipe for disappointment and disillusionment. But sometimes it is there. Have you seen that? Have you seen a place where that's happening? I haven't. I haven't been in a place where everybody has gotten healed of everything. But I have been in places where one person has gotten healed and then that faith has, has branched out and then it's turned into a dozen uh, people being healed because there was uh, faith inspired. For the third time, I want to reiterate this point. There are no excuses for thinking that God cannot show up in a supernatural way, to think that you are someone who God wouldn't do that for or do that with. That's not a guarantee that it happens at every moment, but I would be doing you a horrible disservice if I was to give you any reasons to be comfortable and to be okay with God never showing up and doing anything miraculous. That's, that's how it's worded here. Okay. Now we're going to go back to verses uh, 12 to 14. Many signs and wonders were regularly done by the, uh, among the people by the hands of the apostles. So we should understand the people to be the, the non-believing people. The apostles were doing signs and wonders among the non-believing population. And then it says they were all together in Solomon's portico. Who is they were all? I wonder. Who do you think it refers to? Because the commentators are split uh, on this. There's, there's significant disagreement. So that's to say that from this point forward, you're getting Sandy's interpretation. I've got good reason to believe what I believe about this, this passage. But the, the first thing that people say is that they were all is referring to all of the Christians. Because the previous summary points that we've had generally are referring to uh, all of the Christians together. There are some things that don't make sense about that because the next verse says, but the rest of them dared not join them. So who is the rest of them? If all of them are together in one place, who is the rest of them? And then the people who say that uh, all of them refers to all of the Christians say, well, the rest of them are, you know, the non-Christians. But then the problem that you have is they were held in high esteem by the people. And I've talked about that word laos is that it's, it's a collective noun that refers to the particular group of people, and Luke uses that to refer to the non-Christians. So there is, it's grammatically bizarre for him to refer to them by that word as well as the, the rest of them in the same sentence. It doesn't make sense. The two don't connect to each other grammatically. And so what I think is happening here when it says that they were all together in Solomon's portico is that it's talking about the apostles, and grammatically, uh, for those who are potentially anywhere interested, the apostles is the most uh, likely antecedent for that word. Now, the commentators who disagree with that, they have a problem because they say, well, the, the picture that you're painting seems off. You're saying that the apostles are all standing there in Solomon's portico and the rest of the Christians are too shy. The rest of the Christians are too scared. They're sitting back. And there's somehow this super category of super Christians that are there. And then the reputational statement about the people, you know, magnifying and extolling and praising them is applied to the apostles. 
And those commentators go, we don't really like that. It doesn't sit well with our understanding of how things work. But unfortunately for us, there's no excuse for that interpretation, in, in my opinion, uh, because the, the grammar is quite clear that the apostles are the ones who are standing at Solomon's portico and the rest are the rest of the Christians. The rest dared not join them. Everybody has a line, a limit to how far they are willing to go for God. And to consider the situation, it's quite an extreme one, quite an intense one, because the, the persecution is ramping up against the apostles. Where were they arrested and just, they were just arrested in a particular place? It was Solomon's portico. Then they got released with the charge, don't do that again or we're going to really hurt you next time. So where do they go? Back to the exact same place, Solomon's portico. There they are standing in direct defiance. And so it's not surprising that the rest of them are going, like, guys, they told you not to do that. You got arrested there like yesterday, two days ago, last week, whatever. Why are you going back there? So you can see, I mean, it's, it's a fairly risky thing to do. Everybody has a limit that they are willing to go for God. I wonder what's yours. Do you recognize that boundary in your own life? Do you know where it is? I wonder if you could take stock of how far that line extends and then maybe decide whether you are happy with that. One way to consider where that is is to ask the question, what is it that if God would ask me this to do this, I would say no? What is it that if God asked me to, to do this, I would say no? And I had one of these moments yesterday where uh, I was actually driving home. I was on a reasonably long drive and I was thinking about this message and I pulled up at a set of lights and there was a lady in a car next to me and I felt a prompting to say, wind down your window and get her to wind down her window and just say, uh, God bless you. And I was terrified. And I found out that that's where my line is. <laughs> because I didn't do it. My time ran out. I, I was working up, you know, this, this is my excuses, right? I was working up the courage to do it and then the light went green and oh, off we go. And then I turned the corner and I went, oh, what am I alive for? That woman's never going to see me again. She doesn't know who I am. You know, whatever embarrassment I might have felt for that would last. And, you know, who's going to be embarrassed at somebody just saying, you know, God bless you to them? Who knows how much of the gospel message had gone before me in that situation and I chose not to run up to it. I share that story with you so that you know that I'm not coming from a place of, you know, you know superiority in, in this regard. I'm also sharing that story with you because I don't think that God looks at that instance and goes, I'm very disappointed in you, Sandy. That was an easy task and you failed. That's not what I believe is, is happening. 
I, I would like to think that were that to happen later this afternoon or the, tonight, the same thing, the same prompting, that I would say, yes, I'll do it. Because I, I like to think that that line is moving further and further towards God in my life. You know, the disciples, where's their line? The apostles, where's their line? And I would suggest to you that they don't have one, that perhaps there is something unique and, and you know, if you were to go through a theology degree, you would see that the apostles do have a unique place in the overall starting of the church and the, and the picture of the church. They're the ones who write scripture. They're the ones Jesus chose to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And Paul spends a lot of time uh, arguing, defending his identity, his position as an apostle. So there is definitely something unique about that group of people. But I don't think it should give us the excuse of not considering this. I believe that the disciples did not have any line in their own life, and that was built upon a series of very significant experiences and relationship with God that they had had. Because they had spent three years walking around with Jesus, getting to know him as a, a rabbi, as a mentor, as a friend, as somebody who loved them and cared for them. And uh, they watched him die. They watched him get crucified. They, they saw him when he was resurrected and came to them and witnessed to, you know, the whole message from the Old Testament. They watched him disappear into the sky and say, I'm going to come back again and watch out because I'm going to send to you power from on high. Then they had received that power from on high. See, they had gone through so much that for them, life is literally nothing else. And we get the point uh, even earlier in Jesus' ministry when Jesus tells people, unless you eat my uh, flesh and drink my blood, then you can't come after me. And a bunch of them turned away. And then he says to his disciples, are you going to leave as well? And they say, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. And so based on the, the story that God has taken them through over their, their lives, they're at the point where there is no line for them. Now, that, can I just say that that was not a simple or an easy place to get to, all right? It required significant and difficult and often painful experiences along the way. But God was gracious and God was gentle to them in that whole journey, What I'm trying to say here is that God wants to grow our trust in him. And so the point of identifying where that line is in your life is not to say, you know, shame on anyone here or, or you need to, you know, try and move forward. But the point is to say, all right, where is it? And are you happy with that? Are you happy with that? Because God's not looking at it going, well, I'm not happy with that. God's looking at it going, I, I see that and I would like you to trust me. And he's meeting you at that line and he's asking you to come forward, to take steps closer with him. You see, there are certain things that are one size fits all about Christianity. All of us are called to faith in him, to salvation, to holiness, to fruitfulness, to making disciples and to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. But there are some things in Christian life that are individual to you. Because God gives gifts and a measure of the Spirit which is unique for you and it's yours to grow and discover in. For some, it's the faith to heal. 
For others, it's the generosity to bless and to fund the work of God, whether that's through charity or uh, sponsorship or entrepreneurial efforts. For some, it's intercessory prayer. For some of you, it's going to be something that's so particular to your unique makeup that I couldn't possibly think about what it is to give you an example. But it will reveal itself when you press into God and ask him how he's made you and what he wants from you. And for some people, it appears to be this gift that the apostles had to be so abandoned to the will of God that they can't go anywhere else, that there is no line. There is nothing that would stop them from saying yes to God, that if God were to say, you know, I want you to do this, they would immediately say without hesitation, you know, my God, I trust you that I'm going to, so much that I'm going to say yes. And we know that each one of those apostles uh, met a gruesome and painful martyrdom for the message of God. And so I believe that that was the case. So I want to ask you, where is your line? And are you content with where that line is? But I need to emphasize that God is gracious. Because if we're being honest, most of us would probably identify with the rest of them who didn't dare stand up in the same place where they got arrested just a few days ago. But God wants to draw us forward in our faith and trust of him. You know, in the, in the Levitical priesthood, uh, in the, the temple sacrifices, there was a provision for a free will offering which is that if you just love God and if you just want to give him a sacrifice, then you can come and do that. And there were ways that were articulated to say that's how you do it. And which, which sacrifices do you think God delighted in? I reckon the free will sacrifices more than anything else. Imagine if you were to get a birthday gift from someone. It's this incredibly extravagant gift. You know, you, you couldn't possibly have saved up for it. You couldn't have possibly be so presumptuous to ask anybody to buy it for you. You know, it's this incredible, amazing gift. And then in it is a card. And then you pick up the card and you read it and it says, happy birthday. I got you this gift because I thought it was the right thing to do. It was more than I could really afford and I wasn't too happy to pay for it. But anyway, here it is. It's yours. How would you feel? Would you feel good about that gift? Not at all. God is the same. He doesn't want offerings from us that are done out of coercion or that are done out of a sense of obligation. And this is one of the things that I loved about the message that Liam gave on giving is that if you are giving because you're obligated and if you are getting bitter in that process, stop. God doesn't want it. It's not doing you any good. It's not doing him any good. God doesn't need your money. It's about giving out of the abundance of your heart and about what he's given you. And it's the same thing with this line. Right? God is meeting you there and he doesn't want to yank you across to somewhere that you're not going to be comfortable. Right? I don't like even using the word comfortable there. Right? Sometimes God is going to stir a bit of discomfort in you, but it's in order to, to sort of gently bring you forward. I was speaking to a friend just recently and she was saying, and I think this is a common sort of thing that you have, especially if you've grown up as a Christian, is that you have, you're terrified that God's going to ask you to do this one particular thing. That you, if you really got serious about God and you gave your life to him, that he was going to do, you know, and for her and for her whole generation, she was like, you know, the thing for us was, was he's going to tell me to go to Afghanistan. 
And so this whole you know, group of people uh, growing up in the church, they love God, they love God, and they're like, but please don't send me to Afghanistan. Like, I will go where you want me to go, but please don't send me to Afghanistan. That was, that was the fear. And I know that you know, for my wife, for, for Beck, she had a fear when she was young. She was like, please don't make me marry a pastor. <laughs> you see, the thing is, if God calls you to something, he's not going to do it against your will. He's not going to force you or coerce you because that would be like you giving him that birthday card and he doesn't want that. He wants a relationship with you and coercion is not a relationship. The thing is, by the time you get to the place where God has asked you to be, usually he's given you the desires to be there because he's built the trust with you and he is building trust with you in order to get you there. God is pursuing you. He wants to lead you into deeper relationship and trust with him so that your devotion to him and the placement of that line is done out of your own free will and your desire for God. The other reality to the placement of this line is that I've said God and his grace won't force you over it, but I've also said that each person's called to their own measure of faith and devotion. God doesn't want offerings from you that are made with bitterness or under compulsion, but God does want you to grow in your trust in him and dependence on him. It should be our aim to grow in our faith on, uh, in God. And it, it's just like marriage. It would be you know, ridiculous of me to suggest that in the, in the seven years that Beck and I have been married that we don't know each other better than we did at the start, that we don't trust each other better than we did at the start. Because God's pursuing relationship with us and he wants us to grow in how much we trust him. And how much more should that be with a, a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and who only has our best interests in mind. Not only that, but he has the power to bring them about totally, completely, and perfectly. Friends, I'm trying to encourage you to love God more. Not do more for God, but to love God more. I mean, grow in your affections and trust for God who loves you with an affection that you couldn't hope to describe or to reach the ends of, even if you pursued him with perfect submission for the rest of your life from now and into eternity. Can you trust God a little more tonight? Can you allow him to move that line a little closer to him? Because the reality that I'm trying to articulate is that we might be content and comfortable with where that line is today, but at some point, God is going to challenge that contentment in calling us into a deeper relationship and trust with him. Will you go deeper? Noah, you can come on up. We nearly finished. And I remember being challenged as, as a young man, and I know that I, I'm not the only one to uh, sense this kind of uh, challenge and I'm certainly nowhere near living it out. But I remember feeling like, what would it look like if there was a young person or even just a person, right, as I got older, you know. What would it look like if there was a young person who was just so totally devoted to God, so sold out for God, every decision that they made, every conversation that they had, Everything that they did, they would, they would surrender it and give it to God. That whenever they were you know, convicted of sin, they would turn wholly in repentance to God. That whenever they were asked to do something, that they would have the, the 
obedience and the, the courage and the faith to just say yes and to just do it, what would that look like if someone could pursue that life? And I think my picture of what that looks like has, has changed as I get older and, and I realise that actually God is about working in the mess. That yes, our lives overall get more holy as we you know, learn to, to be more uh, like God and as He actually transforms and sanctifies us by His Holy Spirit. But life doesn't get any neater. And pursuing Him entirely and totally can be a messy thing. But I wonder if there's anyone else who's challenged by that thoughts. And it's not, it's not the call to be perfect. Can you, can you hear what I'm trying to say here? It's not the challenge to be perfect. It's not the challenge to somehow you know, exceed or surpass everyone else or, or somehow be better than everyone else. It's just the idea that, you know what? I just want to love God. I just want to love Him so much. You know, if there's, if there's even one person here who feels that, I pray that there would be. So where does this land for us? And as I was doing my final preparation this afternoon, you know, God gave me a picture of what this message means for us tonight. <clears throat> and considering, you know, where we are as a as a church and what potentially uh, the near future looks like. And he gave me the picture of popcorn. <laughs> really dramatic. But we know that in this this point in time in the church, things are so hot that they're about to burst. That the gospel message is getting so full on that it's ready to go. It's ready to pop. And the more of those kernels that pop, the less that container is actually able to keep hold of them until the popcorn eventually has to go somewhere and it spills. And so my prayer is that as a church, the gospel message can get so hot in our midst, so hot in our lives that we're ready to pop, ready to burst and to go where we know the message is already outrunning us and to cannot, not to consider all of the other things of our life as more important than doing what God is doing. And for us to be able to move that line slowly closer and closer to Him in trust and faith and obedience. I wonder if there's anyone here who would answer that call. Where if God was to say, this is what's happening, this is where we're going. If there's anyone here who would say, I'm in. We're a contemplative group and that's all right. So as we worship just now, I want you to, to consider that. That if God were to actually say, this is where I want you to go, the message is already outrunning you. The fire inside you is getting hot. I want you to consider, would you go? And if you say no, that's fine. Because God is going to meet you there but he's not going to leave you there. Do you understand? You know, we had Jeff Charles tell us this morning about a, a particular group that he was a part of as a younger man. 
and uh, grew from eight people to, to 80 in the space of a year. And he said that 14 of those 80 people ended up going off to Bible college, which is what you did you know, back then when you were, ended up going into ministry and, and doing work uh, for the church. And I reckon that if we're actually listening to God, the, that sort of percentage is, is probably a bit higher than we tend to believe. Right? That, if, that if there are enough people who are soft and open and willing to go where God wants them to go, then it's a lot more than 14 out of 80. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? God, each one of us who knows and believes and trusts in you, we know the power that you've worked in our lives. We know that you've saved us from our sins, that you've saved us from separation with you. You've brought us into relationship. And at some point, that message took hold in our hearts. And we thank you that that was you. That was your work. It was a work of your spirit. And God, we also know that that message is going before us into this world around, into our relationships, into the places that we go. Help us to have the courage to follow, to follow your prompting and to to pull down the excuses that we make to not have faith in you, to not trust you completely, deeply, wholly, fully. And Lord, I just pray that the temperature would begin to rise in this place. Because if we are coming here to have a comfortable experience, then we may as well shut the doors and go somewhere else. If we're not coming here to encounter the living God and to hear from you, then we're not doing anything of value. So would you just stir in us, Lord God, stir in us a desire for your name. We've got some prayer uh, team members here. If there's anything that you would like prayer for, as usual, they'll be off uh, to the side so you can go and uh, pray to them. And maybe if you're feeling like that challenge is resonating with you, maybe it would be a good thing to to have that uh, blessed through prayer. Let's all stand and sing together.